everyone and welcome to this new episode of Our Neighborhood. I am your host Kumkum. I love catching people for meaningful conversations about education and obsess about the how of things. In this podcast, we do deep dive conversations with educators from around the world and talk about everything education, right from learning, teaching, technology, science, policy and everything in between. A very special guest, Franco Moso, has joined us today from Peru. Franco is the co-founder and CEO of Teach for Peru or Insignia Peru since last 11 years. He uh, is a specialist in leadership and change management for educators. He advises the education ministry and policymakers in Peru and has published his work with World Bank, OECD and professors from Harvard University. He's also the co-founder of uh, INE Conference, which ban- biannually gathers 1,300 Peruvian leaders in education from diverse backgrounds to reimagine education. He has won several awards at the Harvard Graduate School of Education while he pursued his graduate studies there. So welcome, Franco. I'm so delighted to have you in our neighborhood. Thank you, Kung Kung. Very glad to be here. Great. So before we dive into today's agenda, you know, I was thinking our listeners would love to hear about the beautiful country, Peru. And if you can tell us about the country a little bit and also the broadly, broadly the structure of education in Peru. So that would help set some ground for today's conversation. Great. Uh, I will be glad to. Uh, I think it's uh, uh, my country is um is beautiful as it is complex as every other country I, I I know we have a population of over 32 million people out of which um, close to 8.5 million are in the educational system 8.5 students that is including students in uh, in tertiary education and when you uh, take students from K to 12, we have around 7 million students, 7.5 million students. Um, that's that's a first fact. The other one is that we have um, around half a million teachers, both taking the public and the private sector. Um, out of the out of the kids that are in schools, the the mainly there is around one point three million students in rural areas. Um, the rest of them are in, in in urban areas. Then I think that the other um, I'd like to share um, other aspects of the system. We have fifty two languages in Peru. Um, we have uh, 24 regions. Um, uh, we have we have access to the ocean, so we have a coastline. Then we have the highlands. No, if you go from the sea, you would go at sea level, then you would rise high into the mountains, and that is what we call the highlands, the Andes. And then if you go down again, you go to the jungle. So we have part of the Amazon as well, um, and therefore we also have, I think. Uh, over 90% of, of all the possible climates in the world, uh, we also host them. Um, and finally, in terms of, I think this is a, another key piece of data, 
that in terms of how the system works, we have a national ministry um, that promotes policy for all regions. Um, then we have 24 regions uh, that uh, they each have their chancellor, their governor, and the chancellor of education. The law is exactly the same for all of them. And then below those regions uh, are what we call the districts. And the districts are 220 districts comprising 3,000 public workers that really lead educational policy at the local level. And then after them, schools, teachers, principals, parents and students. Great. Wow, that, that's a lot of uh, information you've summed up. So, you know, in a packed manner and definitely sets the ground for the conversation. So uh, just one clarification on that. So education is um, planned uh, at the central level or at the regional or district level? So I think it's a mixture. Um, the national policy is usually rolled out across the country. The law of education, things, for example, as how the system is distributed, the the structure of the system, teacher payment, as opposed to other countries, this is exactly the same for every region, no? for what, what in other countries would be every state. Um, but the planning, the programmatic planning and the budget planning, um, it usually starts at the, at the local level, then the regional level, and it's approved at the, the program part. Uh, the policy is approved at the regional level but the budget part is approved at the national level, which is somehow a difficult situation. <laughs> That's a very unique thing I've heard, um, which is a mix of like top down and bottom up here. So great. Thanks, Franco, for setting the context. And moving on, uh, want to hear from you that how did you enter the field of education? You um, studied economics in your college and you moved to education. So just when did that happen and how did that happen? I usually tell this part of my story um, as, a, as a joyful but uh, unanticipated event in my life because um, I, I, I don't, I consider that my story is much more about why I stayed as opposed to why I started it, because I started it, I, as you said, no, I was studying economics, which was a career that I chose. It wasn't really an informed decision, to be honest. Uh, it was just because my sister, I have a big sister, nine years older than me, and, and, and she studied economics, the books were laying around, and somehow uh, I said, well, that's, that's, that, that's a choice, no? And, um, that's that's how it happened for me. And during my uh, undergraduate, I uh, was very far away from social issues. I was more concerned with advanced mathematics. I was more concerned with macroeconomics and the stock market. Um, but I did, but I did teach a lot. Uh, actually, throughout all the undergraduate, I really fell in love with teaching, and I and I taught a lot. Um, even until the first three years of Enseña Peru, I kept teaching. I, I loved. Um, the only thing that I listened about education was, I think in my last year, it was a quarter of an elective course, and that's it. I didn't really pay much attention, to be honest. Um, and then my story is that as soon as I went out, I was working with 
one of my co-founders with Alvaro. And this project of Enseña Peru came along and, and there is where I started my journey. The reason why I stayed basically was because I had the chance to visit all those schools. I was in charge of the relationships with the schools and therefore I had the chance to travel um, different locations and see what was happening, right? Um, my father, my parents had been the ones that experienced, let's say, this last transition. No, my father did live part of, of, of poverty. Part of my family comes from the jungle, from one of the most disadvantaged areas in the country to this day, Loreto. Um, and he lived both, right? But me and my sister, we lived a world of opportunity. And I wasn't that aware of, I, 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 I should say, I wasn't aware um, of what was happening in my country. I visited the schools and then I decided to stay. Sometimes leaving out of schools um, that I visited with much inspiration and sometimes also living in tears. So that's why I say usually gain my strength from indignation and inspiration at the same time. Wow. Yeah, that is a very personal and interesting story, Franco. And I'm sure, uh, it, like now, I think everybody can understand why you started and stayed in in the field of education because of that firsthand experience and um, seeing those differences from your older generation and the opportunities you would have got because of the differences in kind of education you and your sister got. So that like really want to go deep into that uh, taking it forward from there you've been with teach for peru for 11 years or so now and i cannot help but ask you this question this macro question that how do you um, bring about systems level change at a country level when we are talking about something as complex as education something as heterogeneous um, in a country like peru and uh, with different regions, different, more than 50 languages. Wow. So uh, what's, you know, what are the absolute necessary factors in an education system to reform? And this, you can answer this question on, um, you know, a period of your last 10, 11 years. Yeah. So I actually started, even I am one of the co-founders, I started not as the CEO in the first five years, the first four or five years. I started as the chief program officer. So I um and it, so so I have both perspectives, no, as a person that is very much in charge of the program impact till now that I'm helping with that as well, but also with the kind of organization that we want to be for our country. And I think that from that perspective, from both of them, um, it is my understanding right now, I, I truly believe that the pathway is through um, having very strong relationships with the people that are working in the same territories where you are. And so I live an Enseña Peru of two, two phases, let's say. We would go in a region, right? And we would, um, and we would start uh, promoting our program, our leadership programs, right? We, we run leadership programs for, for different leaders across the country in one tool or are already involved in education. 
But I remember distinctively the first five years, the first half of our of our history, for starting, um, not having much of a relationship with local teachers, not having much of a relationship with local policymakers, which are so important, so critical. Um, and so you can have this, mm, I, I, I'd say, a illusion of system change just by being present in a region, in a, in a county, in a community, if you're executing in isolation, no? if you're actually trying to prevent others from being involved in your work or sharing or, you know, like spending time with people that are a part of that ecosystem, that have a stake, that have, we all are part of the problem and part of the solution, right? And then the, the change, I'll, I can share something interesting that we, that, uh, that represents for us a change. In, in the last four years, we've been investing time in developing very close relationships, not only executing our programs, you no, know, in the area with, with our, let's say the group that we work with directly. We've started to invest relationships in really, really establishing trusting relationships with, with not only the head of the district, all the team of the district at a personal level, um, I mean, at a one-on-one -on -one level, no, not, 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 I mean, necessarily friendship. I mean, professionally, like, like really be in touch, do things together, expand our reach. And so, for example, this year, something very interesting happened. Um, we build a short module about how to implement the, our national curriculum, which is a competency-based curriculum, what we call 21st century competence, no? But teachers were having a lot of trouble actually changing their pedagogical practice. We build a module that lasts around one month and a half. Um, and we, we held that space with 23 people of a region that is called Angash. All the team of one district where we work, this region has 20 districts, we work with one of them, and with a group of the regional team, so 23 people in total from March to April. Um, we liked so much the experience. It was, it was such a catalyzer of innovation, of actually changing the student's experience that the region did something that we couldn't have done on our own. That is that they turned that module into formally part of the public policy of the teacher training of all the region. And then suddenly you have that priority scale from 23 people to 16,000 teachers. And they decided that it would happen for the 20 districts. And the 20 districts have 200 educational leaders, we, together, we developed them in this module, and they, they became a whole team of 200 people that over the last two months have trained uh, teachers, uh, around 10,000 teachers in this, in this last month. And the reaction from the teachers has been, this is great, this is different. Um, and it's a true change in how the 
the whole system of professional development worked. And it has spurred a number of innovations that we're actually having a difficult time to, to keep track of, no? um, of examples where students are actually receiving a greater quality of education. And so when I think about that, I think of Enseña Peru, could we scale on our own no, to 10,000 teachers? And I, th I see it as a very difficult thing right now, no? Um, but we can have a role and I see the region, you know, the, that team of the 20 districts, we, we, we're very close now. We spend time together. We revise data together. We, you know, like we create together. Great thing, it was that it wasn't even a matter of this from Enseña Peru. The region made it its own. It was their own thing with their own name, you no? Know? Uh, and I don't know, I think that there is a promise there of working together. Now we're going into joint measurement, something also is uh, we're, we're setting up our systems with this region, for example, to have intervention and control groups across the region and have joint measurements of academic achievement, social emotional learning. And that is something really unprecedented in Peru. No one in Peru in any district measures or tries to measure uh, social emotional learning. Yeah, I don't know. They, they, it seems to me that uh, the most important thing diff that we have done differently is getting close with local leaders and actually doing things together. In theory, can I add something? In theory, um, you need a common agenda, shared measurements, uh, constant communication, reinforcing activities, and backbone support. Those are five elements of a model that we use that we read in an article of Stanford in the literature of collective leadership. Um, and so changes the conversation, right? Because it speaks to the kind of coalition that you want to be a part of, as opposed to the kind of program that you want to run, which is the, the usual. Hmm. Yeah. I think you've summarized, you know, years of your uh, wisdom in this uh, answer and so much to take away from it that how, um, you know, going into something and executing a program versus a coalition-based approach where um, you create. And that was my follow-up question, actually, where I think you've covered it up uh, partly that how to create buy-in in the hierarchy of uh, all the public policy professionals, civil servants, local leaders, and moving upwards in that chain. Because what you are saying is that get as local as possible and, you know, try to... Uh, like they see themselves what kind of progress is happening and what you mentioned about measurements it's it's another thing which is very political to do because uh, you know you don't know what the results would be if you're doing a randomized control trial like that or any other research like that which is live so you know uh, the local leaders or uh, the the regional government could come in and say that we don't want to do it because we like this could hamper you know their election in the next cycle but uh, if that level of confidence and trust has been achieved with with the local government and the local leaders and we can clearly see the impact then i think that's the you know best thing to aim for yeah so, i think i think that um all the forces that you describe, kum kum, they 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 are present, right? Um, 
but um, I think I I I I I would say I'm in awe all the time in the sense of discovering that they're constantly discovering more courageous leadership out there, no, in my country. You know, when I, whenever I cringe when an organization sort of looks at itself as the center, no, I think that we need to decenter the work from us because there are just so much leadership potential beyond uh, beyond your own organization, no, and 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 some of the greatest leaders that we are working now with um they didn't even go through our programs no they're they're just out there and willing to work and so i also think that when you approach it uh, from a distance now when you approach the work from a distance from these local leaders of course they're going to think defensively or skeptically right but but we took three times three years before surfacing uh these kinds of projects no uh, two and a half, three years of building relationships of, you know, just trying to understand what was happening in that region, um, uh, spending time in their, in their spaces, in their events, uh, walking the field with them, then walking the field with us, like, and then eventually it just, we're, we're almost like a, we're almost like a team, uh, an inter-organizational team, uh, because at some point it stops being the what we have experienced. At some point it stops being ah, you have your program, we have our program. No, uh, it, at some point it starts being okay. So we can serve together four hundred thousand students in this region um, if we combine ourselves. Um, so so yeah, I I can't help coming back to to what happens when you put the work at the, the you put the the problem let's say or the hope of change uh in front of both organizations as opposed to just coming from a place of saying well here's what we do just let us be not so many programs out there, i think sometimes they're just ah the district what a pain no and uh, I just want to get the contract ready and I just want them let me do what I think is best, no? And I've lived that and, and, and there is no chance of having system change like that. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, a great story of how to institutionalize a reform in the first place and then sustaining it. So I think... Uh, that's a great example you've shared, Franco. And um, building on to that, I had two more broad themes to uh, discuss with you. So the first uh, of them is that how would you explain 21st century learning? Because you've, you've worked on that, um, at a, again, at a systemic level. And how do you systemize 21st century level skills in, in school education? And then how do you go about and measure it? So if you can uh, tell our listeners about that. It's a, it's a, it's a great question. It's difficult. Um, so I'll tell you from a personal standpoint how I see this. Um, it, this is an effort of humanity. This is the first thing that comes to mind. The reimagining of uh, 
what is worth pursuing uh, in the educational setting, right? What our kids, what 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 my daughter is going to learn about. That endeavor is, I see it as a world effort. And because it is a world effort, when I hear, for example, the 21st century competence, I see it, okay, so we've, we, we're trying to put a name to have a common language to start building progress, right? Because if you can't at least have some sort of common name, no? Usually when I, uh, I am in this, I spend time almost every day with educators across the country, uh, you know, growing together, uh, they often tell me, but I I read another another article where they, they don't call it 21st century, they call it competencies for life. And what is it? Like, it's, it's really, it's pretty much the same, no? Yeah. Uh, uh, along with the five models of feedback for students with different authors and different names, it's pretty much the same. Yeah. Uh, but Within that commonality, there are advances and it helps us, you know, understand better. So the, the, the question right now for me is, I think that, I think that the value, one of the such important values is that when you talk about competencies, as opposed to just accruing knowledge, right, which is what most of us, a lot of us lived as children, um, eh, I think that we cannot forget, in my opinion, that the competencies have a purpose, no? Um, and when I think, for example, of why um, there is a competency in, in our curriculum of, of uh, you know, like maybe some part of mathematics or, or STEM, I try to think about my daughter and I try to think about, okay, so if mathematics is a sort of language, is a way for her to um, think logically, no, I don't even know if she's going to use logarithms in her life, you know, but, <laughs> but, but I think that I want to ask myself the question of what, what will be the purpose when, when she is 20, 25, 30, for her to go through this experience? What kind of problems, what kind of situations will she be able to solve? How will she be able to contribute to solving the, the, the world's most pressing problems and how will she be able to take care of the people around them? No. And so, I find a lot of purpose in asking those questions. Um, and second, how do you evaluate? I think that what we're pursuing right now is that we're placing a lot of effort on formative evaluation, not standardized instruments, because that in itself is a parallel different context. We're placing a lot of, you know, when you have a program, you have two levels of, of when you think about evaluation. No, One level is the formative, the day-to-day, -day, no? And that is not guided by standardized testing. That is guided by what a teacher, how a teacher decides to evaluate on a certain week based on where their students are. But it should be based on a shared understanding of competencies on the kinds of attitudes, skills, knowledge that it requires. Um, and, and, and different teachers take different choices, but based on a shared understanding, ideally. And then there is the program evaluation, which is when you bring your standardized tests and everything and try to compare across realities, no? We're placing, in terms of competence, a lot of effort in building communities of teachers that jointly understand the curriculum, that jointly find depth of understanding of each of the competencies, and that from that emerge 
the criteria that hold ex an exciting journey, a challenging learn learning journey for students. No, so if you think about, for example, I was actually having this discussion yesterday. Uh, a, a teacher, a a teacher with a five year old, uh, presents this incredible project, right? Uh, which is build a fantastic plant. You build a unrealistic plant, no? But then you look at the questions. And the questions were when when the student was, you know, telling about about what she did was, okay, and does your plant have leaves? Does it have a stem? And I was saying to, to that teacher coach, that is just so basic, no? Uh, it doesn't hold... Uh, a high expectation out of our students. And if we just delve more into that competency of understanding the natural world, which is a competency of our curriculum, if we together as a learning community say, we're going to just marvel at this competency and say that um, when you understand the life of a plant or the life of a student, there are so many questions and so many great ideas in science that you can then go on to use. No? Um, and we turned, we sort of turned around that project and, and the kid was ultimately on a path to explaining how that fantastic uh, plant relates to the wider ecosystem and how it relates to the sun and to the ground, as opposed to just saying if it has leaves or not. No? Um, and I don't know, we're going to that path. We're going to that path and I'm finding that if you build communities of teachers, you can gain great depth and shared understanding about where we're going in terms of competencies, regardless of, of the development of standardized testing, which I believe that it's 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 a it's it's an interesting field in itself. But the standardized test um, does not concern the day-to-day -day activity. No, the day-to-day -day activity yeah. is a teacher saying, "Where is my student, and where? How can I help that particular student go forward?" And for that. You have to understand the competencies and what they mean and, and love the competencies. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've not heard that answer before because I've asked that question to a couple of people before about having assessments. And um, I think what was unique about what you said was building that community of teachers and communities of practice where there's a shared understanding and agreement on at least uh, some kind of competencies to do that kind of assessment till we are able to, you know, have those standardized testing, which we have for our other courses like math and science and English. So, yeah, that I I definitely would take that down uh, as the answer to uh, to the question. And I think, for example, in math, right, uh, most of us in Peru uh, have a trauma with math, for example, because... <laughs> We were taught math as a for extremely foreign uh, language where you are learned through memorizing formulas, right? Um, without actually knowing almost almost nothing of what of what this means, no. So, for example, if you if you and and, and most people uh, in across our country right now they they evaluate based on a if you can solve a formula that doesn't have any background, you know, a very complex formula. And so, for example, what would happen if through the shared understanding of what it means to think mathematically, teachers moved 
to complement uh, those procedures with actual mathematical thinking and meaning making and finding beauty in mathematics? And what if we evaluate it that way? You won't get to that point where the student in the day-to-day has that experience with a standard You will get it through a joint process of understanding. You know what Peter Senge says from MIT, um, let's have a generative discussion about the nature of the problem and then let's co-create together the future. The future of education is not only standardized testing. It is a part, but most of it is in the day-to-day decision of teachers. Yes, yes. I think you pointed the focus on on the most important uh, stakeholder on the shoulders. The whole system depends. So uh, thanks for thanks for that uh, brilliant answer, Franco. Um, so I uh, want to move towards closing the conversation and uh, shift some gears to ask you a, a different kind of a question, uh, which is which could be more personal but would be interesting for our listeners. So um, if you could mention you know the most influential people who have been for you in in your journey last few years or um, you know some people's work which inspired you so much that and you learned from them so much so just something on that oh wow uh, i um, i i i think that um Within the many, uh, I just have, uh, it's difficult to pinpoint an idea. I, I, I think I'm in constant learning, uh, but I'll, I'll share some. I'll share some uh, from my reading experience, because I read all day, every day. Yeah, I've uh, seen you. I've seen yeah. you do that, Franco. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the names that come to mind. When I think about, for example, the biography of Nelson Mandela and this, uh, the inner conversation about what is right, the combination of courage and humility, I think, I, and, and forgiveness, I think educational systems in many places, they need a lot of healing uh, between people. I think I draw from that. When I think about Mother Teresa, for example, Actually, someone from my team wrote it up uh, before, and I read her words. Um, it actually, it actually seems paradoxical with system change, but someone from my team said, um, "It sometimes you may not be creating like a change for millions of people, but if you concentrate on trying to help." a single person, for that person, it may be everything, you know? Um, Those two people come in mind from their readings, from my colleagues um, in in the Teach for All Network and in my country, I think there is a real reflection to have around courage, about what would it mean to have courage, and someone I remember asked as as myself, asked me, and and a group of us, a great question is, what would you do if you were ten times braver? Uh, I love that question, um, and 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 yeah, I just I just marvel at at, at how courageous people can be um, 
across the world and across the country. I, I have such admiration for that that character trait. And I think also the, the, the inner compass. I think that working on your character, on how you create your opinions, on how you um, uh, you know how you create your opinions about about situations, about others, about how you make decisions, uh, about how do you understand yourself within a context, understanding value your culture to value other people's cultures, how you understand your your own biases. No, uh, everybody has biases in how they see the world. I think that is also a worthwhile pursuit, and I found. I don't know, Daniel Kahneman uh, to be a great person, David Brooks. Uh, I don't know, yeah. The, the, this sort of sum up some of the, the the main things that have been of a learning for me. Okay, great. I think, Franco, we need to do a second episode where you give us all the uh, wisdom you have from, uh, you know, this last question I asked you. The answer, I think that could be another one hour episode, but uh, this was great conversation and so rich. And I think we pivoted from a lot of different themes and ended up with hearing the life philosophy. And, uh, you know, that that's great. So thank you so much, uh, Franco, for joining us. And um, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, what would be the best way? Uh, through my cell phone. Um, my cell phone is uh, plus 51, which is the country code for Peru. And my number is 946114033. And I'll be just glad to to speak to anyone who wants to speak about education. I do would like to say um, for every adult that is listening out there, just whenever... Just take care of your kids. Um, realize your own biases and try to think for an extra five seconds whenever you're going to say no to a kid because you might be missing out on an opportunity to um, to witness the creativity and the kindness of kids. I think that that's also really important these times. Great. That's a great message, Franco. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for joining in. We'll see you in the next episode, so stay tuned. Thank you. Bye.